0: Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Last week, last week we kind of talked about some of the uh, challenges of the, the political season. If you were really into politics then welcome to Georgia, where we get bonus politics uh, for for the next month. So for the next month, you get to turn on your television or watch a YouTube video or go to the mailbox. And somebody's at some point in time, probably lots of points in time, going to be looking at you and saying something nasty about somebody else over the next month. And to make it even better, most of it probably won't actually have anything to do with anything political. It'll just have to do with character assassinations and personality attacks and things like that. I wish I knew where the money for all this advertising came from. Because there is a lot of money that gets spent on this stuff. I was eating lunch the other day and there was a couple older guys sitting at the booth behind me. And they were having the same conversation. one of the guys made a great point. He said, "Give me one candidate who makes a single ad and says, "Here's who I am, here's where I stand," and the rest of this campaign money is being donated to charity." Not charity. I mean we, I mean, she would appreciate that, but, uh, but not, not the same thing. Uh, I think that's a great idea, honestly. Um, Now again, uh, if that happens, I don't know that that candidate raises much money or wins the election. I think some of us just like to give just so we can see all the fights and things going on. But don't worry, I don't think the Senate runoff uh, candidates are going to be donating any money to charity. Uh, Sorry. The the campaign for this particular Senate seat has already spent $262 million dollars. And it's expected over the next 30 days that an additional $100 million will be spent in the state of Georgia before the election uh, on December 6th. So what happens, though, when you remove personalities from politics and all you're left is with those policies? You're left asking the question, what makes a Republican a Republican? What makes a Democrat a Democrat? What makes a Libertarian a Libertarian? And, of course, parties each publish their platforms it's a document that basically basically says here's where here's what we care about here are the things that matter to us here's the places we stand on these things and I would tell if you haven't taken the time to read the different platforms by the major political parties it's truly eye-opening but a platform isn't birthed out of thin air it's not something that just shows up one day it's got to come from somewhere and we understand that it comes from principles a particular way of understanding the world in which we live. And one of the biggest differences between the the different political spectrum here comes down to something as basic as how documents and laws are read and interpreted. All this stems from kind of a philosophy that believes that the guiding statements of truth that we have in our our nation are considered living documents. What does that mean? It means that things like the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence are are best interpreted in light of the current reality rather than the author's intent. It didn't matter what James Madison said. What matters is is how you feel today. What's going on today? It doesn't matter what Thomas Jefferson said. It doesn't matter what any of the founders said. What matters is is how those things make us feel today. Um, And unfortunately, that's uh, that's not necessarily the most effective way to, to run a nation which is why a court can find new rights today that aren't articulated in those documents. That's why a court can, can for example, find a right to abortion in a document that doesn't even mention the, the word abortion. Thankfully, that has been turned over, but states now are, are making this a mess, aren't they? Uh, so, so this is the world in which we live. And, and so what happens in politics is, is that the structure of the political system, which used to be bedrock, is really kind of turned into play you know how Plato works. You can kind of sculpt it and mold it, and make it whatever you want it to be, and it's not exactly the best foundation on which to build things. The right set of judges at the right circumstances with the right set of documents can find anything they want to find when those documents are living. As people of faith, we see this and we understand that, that this should raise some concerns. Because in the same way that rights can be invented, they can also be softened. The First Amendment, for example, is foundational for us, but many in the political realm would prefer that religious freedom should be limited to simply religious gatherings. You'll often hear people talk about the freedom of, of, of worship. You say, oh, okay, I know what that means. You, you may not know what that means. Freedom of worship is, is something you'll hear a lot on the left use because worship is something that happens in a sanctuary. And so when Sunday morning is over and the amen is said, you leave, you're no longer in worship. What the founding documents actually say is freedom of religion. Because religion happens beyond the boundaries of a worship center. They happen. It happens beyond the boundaries of a sanctuary. And those things should concern us. At the same time, we understand that the Bible makes claims to truth. Very matter of fact, claims to truth. And What happens when this philosophy is applied to the Bible? Instead of understanding the Bible as the author's intended, we want to reinterpret it according to what our own political or philosophical biases are. And again... We need to understand context and culture when we open our Bibles. We need to understand what was going on when Paul was writing the words that he wrote. We need to understand what the church was facing when Paul wrote the, the letters that he wrote. We need to understand what was going on when Matthew penned his gospel and Mark penned his gospel. We need to understand what was going on. We also need to understand the, the, how verses and how chapters fit into the Bible. In a meeting the other day, Jacob was talking about the misuse of Jeremiah 29.11. It's a great verse of the Bible and it shows up in every graduation card that's ever been sold by any Christian publisher. And For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you future and a hope. And man, for that high school senior that opens that card and looks to see how much money is in it and then later takes time to realize what the card says, man, what an encouraging verse to use for that high school senior. Except the problem is, is that the context of this verse isn't really about God's perfect plan for the bright-eyed high school senior. The context of this verse is, is about God's faithful, faithfulness to the nation after 70 years of exile. Basically, in the context of Jeremiah 29, the prophet is saying life is gonna be really, really, really hard for you for the next 70 years. And then you're gonna die. And then God's gonna maintain his plan and his faithfulness for, your, for the next generation. And again, that's not what you wanna give to the high school senior. Although the part about life being really, really hard for a season may be good, that's not what our intent is when we quote that verse out of context. This living document thing is a real difference between conservative evangelical denominations and even those more mainline denominations that we see in our society today. That's why we can come to such radical differences in so many of these controversial topics today. Many have chosen simply to ignore or reinterpret what the Bible says about these things. Now, you're here today, so that tells me that you're, it says something about your commitment to truth. You didn't show up today expecting, uh, expecting something contrary to this. If you were unconcerned about that, then you probably would be at a church somewhere else this morning. So working off that assumption that we are people who are committed to the absolutes of Scripture, who find ourselves living in a culture that's more and more hostile to that worldview, we actually open our Bibles and we find that God has given us some really good insight into this today. If you've got your Bibles open, we in Joshua chapter 8. We'll be at the end of the chapter today in Joshua chapter 8. I would invite you to stand with me as we look at this from Joshua chapter 8 today as I read the last five verses of this chapter. God's Word tells us this. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel on, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses. An altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born... "...with their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the, priest, the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law." There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Joshua's commitment to your word and for this renewal with, for the nation in the consideration of your word and your law we ask your blessings on it as we consider the significance of it today for us in Jesus name i pray amen thank you could be seated what has happened up until this point just a brief recap it we got to the end of Joshua chapter 8 we go all the way back to the battle of Jericho which had happened days before and we got this guy by the name of Achan he stole things that belonged to God he hid them and He brought God's scorn upon the nation. The wrath was first made manifest as the nation attempted to conquer the much smaller town of Ai. The army was defeated, which led to some questions being asked about the reason. And God let them know that somebody broke his law. And they went through this divine trial to to find the guilty party who was Achan. And we understand that Achan and his family was judged. With the sin dealt with, God gave Joshua and his commanders the plan for how to deal with the nation of Ai, and it was soundly defeated. And we picked up there in verse 30, with the nation gathering up to reflect upon the events of those previous days. During this time, they worship, they offer sacrifices, and one of the things I love about the Old Testament is, is they spend a tremendous amount of time just in the reading of the Word of God. I mean, all these times and places where, where they, they spend this renewal covenant, I mean, they read massive chunks of the Word of God. and I mean, how many of us have done our, our Bible reading or, or maybe going through the Bible in a year and we get to some of those Old Testament passages and it's like, okay, five minutes in Leviticus is all I can handle. I mean, I need to move on to something else. Five minutes in Leviticus is all I can handle. But these gatherings, they spend hours in the public reading of these words that we're like, where's the gospel? Please get me to the gospel. I, can't, I, need out of the, I need out of Leviticus and give me some Matthew right now, right? But this is what they do. They spend an incredible amount of time focusing on the Word of God. And again, this shows up at the end of chapter 8. It may seem like it's somewhat inconsequential, but I believe that this comes at exactly the right time for the nation, and I believe it reminds us of some very important principles as well. I think the first thing that it teaches us is that we need to remember who we worship. We need to remember who we worship. After the conquest of, of Ai, Joshua took the time necessary to reflect on the one who had brought them to this place. Again, as a nation, it's good. Let's circle up and let's remember who, got, who gave us the victory. It's good to remember how, how we got here. We didn't get here because we're awesome. We got here because of who, who was fighting for us. And there he builds an altar to the Lord. And there's references here about doing what Moses had said. And it's a direct fulfillment back to Deuteronomy chapter 27, where Moses gives these instructions to the nation that once they get across the, the river and, and once they get to the promised land, they need to do this very thing. And I was thinking about this and just the, just the sight of this massive nation of people gathering together to worship and to hear the word of God be, be read aloud. And it occurred to me that, that by this point in time that the nation had already got a taste of what Canaan was like. They'd been there for a little bit. They'd already probably seen some of, the, some of the false idols of the Canaanites. I mean, you've got to imagine that when they rushed into Jericho, that they would have been exposed to the, to the idolatry that was in Jericho as part of what they were to destroy. When they got to Ai, they would have seen some of the, the worship that took place there in Ai. you got to imagine they had already experienced that. I, I suspect that they'd already seen some of the, some of the sensual practices of these people. And so with that in mind, it was very important that, that they remain in their steadfast commitment to the Lord. Again, we know there's coming a day. We don't have to get out of the book of, of Joshua and into Judges before we recognize that the nation starts to go on a downhill spiral. There was coming a day where their commitment to God would waver, but this was not the day. In this moment, in this gathering, in this assembly, their commitment to God was solid, as a church, we live in a very different world today, don't we? We can't go around killing folks who don't worship Jesus. In fact, as, as God's people, I think we tend to be very much appreciative of the fact that we live in a nation where we have this very celebrated privilege, the freedom of, of religion. Um, now again, this means that not only do we have the right to gather, but that means that other people that we may not agree with also have the right to gather when they want to. And they're free together as long as their gathering doesn't affect our gathering or, or their gathering doesn't lead to harm towards other people. I mean, even in Chattanooga, I think, I mean, I've said this before, we live in the most churched city in America. Uh, there are churches on, on every corner, literally, and, and it doesn't take much to have a church in Chattanooga. Five people and, and a pastor and you've got a church in Chattanooga. But even within the most church city in America, I think about how many non Christian things there are around us. I mean, literally right here at our back door, you've got a Mormon meeting place that's right here outside of our back door. Um it, go around the, the battlefield bypass towards Chickamauga and up on the hill, there's a, there's a Buddhist temple right up on the hill on the, on the bypass and they built a, a, a huge little altar to Buddha outside. I mean, I've not actually gone to check it out. I don't have any business up there, but, but Chickamauga? I mean, y'all grew up in Chickamauga and, and Buddhists, Buddhists weren't there when I was there. I don't remember a Buddhist in Chickamauga, but there they are. Uh, now again, some of us may be very uncomfortable with this and the marks on our community that this brings. But I think that's part of what makes this nation so great is is that we do have the freedom. You don't get the freedom of Christian churches meeting openly in Saudi Arabia or or China. If there's a Christian church in China, it's because the government put it there. And I can promise you that if the Chinese Communist Party has endorsed your church, it's probably not a biblical congregation, okay? But in America, we have these rights. And, And personally, I'm not threatened, by these people. I love when the Mormons knock on my door and the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door. I don't cower because I'm afraid they're about to defeat me with some philosophical argument about why they're right and why I'm wrong. I look forward to it because my God's bigger. I think it's like a little mini Prophets of Baal moment. It's like, my God's bigger than your God's. I'm going to show you why. Like, build the altar, get the sacrifice on it, wet it down. Let's call fire from heaven. Let's see who wins. I mean, I look forward to it. It's not threatening to me. Because I very much believe that the God of the Bible always burns up the sacrifice of the false prophets. I firmly believe that. As Christians, we live in a a culture that's not the same from top to bottom. But as we live in this culture, it's essential that we live lives in such a way that people recognize the God we worship is very different from the God of the nations. The problem is, is that we have many who, who claim to follow Christ but who live very much like they don't follow anybody but themselves. In so many ways, we become abusers of the grace of God, taking advantage of his patience and testing the limits of his kindness. And in doing so, we bring reproach to the name of the Lord. We say we believe the word of God, we worship in churches together that proclaim the word of God, but we live our lives somewhat disconnected from our proclamation. And I do believe that it has cost us dearly In reaching the hearts of our nation. And this is one of God's foundational expectations for his people You shall have no other gods before me and have no idols. Now, gods don't have to be wooden or stone idols like the Buddha on the bypass. They can be anything that serves as a substitute for that which only God can do. And if we desire to live in a nation that turns its heart to the Lord, then we as the church have to remember who it is that we worship. But secondly, we need to remember the standard by which we worship. Joshua made it very clear when he was building the altar, he was doing it exactly as Moses had commanded. Moses told him when he built the altar not to use any tools on it, because if they use their tools on the stone, then the stone becomes defiled. I mean, that's how specific God was when he gave these instructions, and Joshua understood that. Again, it may seem inconsequential, but for Joshua, it was a standard. This is what God says. This is how we should do it. He didn't try to improve on it. He didn't try to make it better. He didn't try to make it relevant to their newfound position in the land. He didn't try to make it more tolerable to the Canaanites. He did exactly what Moses said he should do. We need to understand what our standard is and where our freedom lies, Because again, there's the standard and then we have freedom in some things. Sometimes churches wanna make standards out of things that really aren't standards at all. Um, For example, there's a lot of churches who feel that particular Bible translations are the standard. They are not. They don't care which Bible translation you're reading. We don't, it's not, a, it's not an issue. Now, there's some that are better than others, uh, and then there's some that we prefer over others, but at the end of the day, your salvation is not determined on whether you're reading the King James Version or the Holman or Christian Standard Bible or the ESV. That's not, some, that's not a standard for us. Again, we have our preferences. If you cut your teeth on the King James Bible and you read the King James Bible devotionally, that's great. I'm so happy that you can understand it and you glean great spiritual insight from it. That's wonderful. If that's not what you cut your teeth on, then I don't want you picking up the King James Bible and trying to, trying to grow in the Lord with the King James Bible. I want you to get a modern English translation that you can understand because what I care about is not when it was, written, when it was translated, but whether you are growing when you, when you pick it up and read it. That's the most important thing. But when we try to elevate that to a standard, we're stepping outside the boundary of what God has told us. Many churches treat particular worship styles as a biblical standard. They are not. You can have all kinds of different worship styles. You can worship a cappella. I don't have a single problem with the way the Church of Christ sings their hymns. I don't have a problem at all. If they want to gather together and sing a cappella, let me tell you, Church of Christ folks can sing. Uh, I mean, they they sound good. If you want to have a full band up here, that's great, too. It doesn't say. I mean, the Psalms use all kinds of percussion instruments, and I'm a drummer, and so I'm all for the cymbals and all that kind of stuff. I love that. I mean, that's, but again, it's a matter of preference. It's not a a standard. Some churches even treat dress codes as standards, they are not. We look at this and we understand that God has given us all kinds of liberty in these things. Again, we have all kinds of very good, readable translations of the Bible available to us. At the same time, God has given us a tremendous amount of freedom in our worship today. And as long as our clothes are not a distraction or immodest or a disruption, God is just as pleased with the authentic worship of someone who wears a suit and tie as he is with somebody who wears blue jeans and cowboy boots. He's not concerned about exterior things. He's concerned about the heart. The standard lies in the motives of our worship and the heart of our worshipers. Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 8 that location was less important than the heart of the worshiper pointing her more to, pointing more to her heart and mind. He told her that true worshipers worshiped in spirit and in truth. In other words, if your understanding of worship is about your pleasure, then you've missed the standard. Our worship is a reaction of a grateful heart and a redeemed mind, not about having ourselves entertained on Sunday morning. Joshua takes the time to read the standard to the people. Again, it blows my mind. We're told that Joshua read every word. These people heard the story of their forefathers as he read through Genesis. They heard of their affliction in Egypt and the giving of the law in Exodus and Leviticus. They were reminded of their wilderness wanderings. Many of them who were listening had been there. And they finally heard the second giving of the law from Joshua that they had just heard Moses give. Every word of it. Again, if I were to stand up and say, all right, everybody, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read the first five books of the Bible out loud this morning. Some of y'all might leave when I turn my back. I just think that's the reality. But that's what Joshua did. And that's why we take the Word of God so seriously. That's why when I preach, I preach through books of the Bible typically. That's, that's why we get bent out of shape when people want to tweak it to suit their own biases. It is our standard, and it cannot be adjusted to suit our fancy. Finally, we need to recognize our standard predicament. Joshua had everyone gather for this ceremony. I love, it's so specific here that that it says the Bible spells out that it was the entire assembly. It talks about the fact that the foreigner is there, the men are there, the women are there, the children are there. The children are there for the reading of this word. He didn't send them off somewhere else. He didn't send them to the back room. They were there for the reading of the word of God. I think that's important. Everyone was involved in this. Everyone needed to hear from God's word. This was for everybody. I was thinking about this, Rahab was there. This was the first time that Rahab would have been able to hear God's word read aloud in this environment. It had to be amazing for her to be exposed to the entirety of God's revealed word. Listen, I think if we wanna see our culture and our nation restored to a place of righteousness, this is something that we have to begin to communicate, that we share a common predicament we share a common problem we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God different seasons seem to bring about different kinds of offenses and sinful cultures but regardless of that we all share the same common problem of sin and as the people of God we possess the common universal solution to the problem and that's the good news of Jesus Christ we have to avoid a spiritual arrogance that's so often present in the church, which is why Joshua set out to read the entire book of Moses. It wasn't that long ago that these people who gathered for this assembly, these mighty conquerors, they've staked out new, a new place in this new land. They are winning victories over their enemies. These people probably get puffed up some as they watch their enemies defeated. But it wasn't that long ago that these conquerors of Canaan were wanderers in the wilderness. It wasn't that long ago that these people that are enjoying the fat of the land of Canaan were eating daily sustenance of manna as it was sent down from heaven. It would do us well from time to time to remember this. If you're in Christ today, it wasn't that long ago that you were lost in your transgressions and sin. And that you were bound for hell. It wasn't that long ago. And you may be an old person and you were saved a long time ago, but in the grand scheme of eternity, it wasn't a long time ago that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, walking away from God instead of towards Him. And while today we certainly rejoice to be held in the strong, loving hands of our God, it wasn't that long ago that we were enemies of the cross and we were doomed for destruction. And it's only by God's grace that we stand rescued. That's true for us. It's true for everybody else as well. I tell you what, watching the election results and some of the things that we've seen over the last few years, I truly wish that we lived in a nation where righteousness was the goal. Just like we talked about last week, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. But as I think about this, the verse that really stands out in my mind today, unfortunately, is Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The Bible says woe to those. It, It represents a complete inversion of the standard. I mean, God has given us a standard. Here's what you should do, here's how you should live, here's how you should walk, here's how you should speak, here's where you should go, here's what life should look like, here are all the things that I have, here are my expectations for you, here's what holiness looks like, here's what righteousness looks like, here's what evil looks like, here's what sin looks like. God has given us all those things. And there is no confusion. God speaks with absolute clarity when it comes to right and wrong, when it comes to moral and immoral, when it comes to righteousness and unrighteousness. There's no confusion there. There's no gray area there when God has given us his expectations for sin and righteousness. He has told us what he wants from us. And we live in a society that's done what? Flipped it upside down down and the prophet Isaiah says woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter it is a Tremendous problem when we completely invert the standard that God has given us. And that's why we as God's people have to know the standard. We have to know what's right, and we have to know what's wrong. We live in a day and time where injustice and wickedness seem to rule the day, but it cannot be that way for the people of God. We have to understand the standard. And as God's people, we must stand above the fray, seeking first the kingdom of God with an absolute embrace of God's standard of right and wrong, sin and righteousness. Yeah, I love Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You hear that what the Bible says about itself, that it's living, and we say, oh, well, that means that it is a living document, that we can't just read it and interpret it on the basis of how things are going today, and if we don't like it, then, then we, can, we can massage it to mean something that it, that it doesn't actually mean. But the problem is when the Bible declares itself living, it isn't saying that it's living and open to the whims of future readers. It's living and it's open to the meaning that God has ascribed to it. Because it is living, it is active, it is designed to bring about change. Not in itself, but change in the reader. When someone encounters the word of God, it is intended to change them. It is active, it is busy, it is working in their heart, it is busy working in their mind. The word of God seeks to conform hearts and minds to the ways of Christ. I think it's safe to say that the vision of our founding fathers in America, it's probably getting diluted by the time and distance that lives between us and them. But as God's people, we understand just how critical the standard of God's word is for our generation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says that one day Satan will absolutely be defeated. Verse 11 says, and they have conquered him, the devil, by, their, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. We know the blood of the lamb has already been spilled, but we are still shaping the witness of the church. Every day that we live our lives, we are still bearing witness to our testimony and the testimony of the church. And as we as the church choose to obey the standard we continue to enhance and build our testimony. But as we drift from God's standard, we know that the less effective our testimony will be. Are you committed to the perfect standard of the word of God as given to us in the pages of scripture? Are you committed to the standard that God has given to us even when it rubs you the wrong way? The prophet Amos talked about a, talked about a plumb line that he was holding against the nation of Israel. If you don't know what a plumb line is, it's something used in construction where a, a, a weight is hung at the bottom of a, of a string and it's a, it's, it's a non magnetic weight. So the only thing that's keeping that plumb straight is, is gravity. And that's a pretty fair, consistent, fairly constant thing that we deal with. Again, it's hard to defy it. Uh, you probably will fail if you try this morning. So the plumb line is actually designed to help make sure that the wall is. Is standard, that the wall is straight, that the wall is, you know, for lack of better terms, that the wall is, is plumb. And in the Amos chapter 7, the prophet Amos talks about that there's a standard that's being held against the people of God, and he calls it that plumb line. Well, that's still true for us today. There's still a standard that's being held to us that's immovable, that's always right, and we know the standard to be the Word of God. Would you pray with me this morning, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way in which it challenges us. I thank you for the way in which it bears witness against the evil and wickedness of of this generation and so many generations like it before. Father, we deeply appreciate the freedom that we have in this land. We deeply appreciate the opportunity that we have to bear witness to the gospel But Lord, we also recognize that it is a very tenuous freedom, that it is one that is held on by words on a page, and we understand that it's not beyond even the realm of possibility that a court somewhere could look at that freedom and could attempt to revoke it. And so, God, may we be good stewards of the freedom that we have. May we be good stewards as we practice our faith in Jesus, not just within the walls of this assembly, but within the boundaries of our everyday life. Lord, would we bear witness to your faithfulness in our classrooms and in our workplaces? Would we point out the faithfulness of your word to our colleagues and coworkers? Would we remember the nearness of your return? with our neighbors and our loved ones. God, I thank you for the standard by which you have given us. May we be faithful to point it out, to rely on it, to depend on it, and to point others in the direction of your word. God, I pray you'd move in our hearts today. May we be men and women committed to the truth Nothing short of it. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 10.45. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.